here I am to worship. Not are, are you here for this hour to worship, but here I am in existence on planet Earth, living to bow down to worship God and to say that he is my God. You know, we're all worshipers, whether people believe in Jesus or not. Everyone worships something. It's whatever we say is worthy of my attention and my affection and my time and my energy, what I get up for, what I go to bed for, what I wake up for, all of that is what we worship. And then this word reaches our ear in this good news which transcends everything we would have experienced on life beforehand or after reaches our ears and tells us of a true God who lives who made us and gave his only son for us God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life I'll never know I'll never know how much it cost personally to see my sin upon that cross because he's the one who bore all of that for me and for you. And this God is worthy of our time, energy, and efforts. We worship him. So we're gonna bow the knee, even as the song says right now, pray and ask God to help us and give us ears to hear this morning. Heavenly Father, still in these bodies that you promise you'll change, still on planet, planet Earth that you promise you will make new, we're very much aware of where our worship is off. We're still tempted to put things before our face, between us and you. You know those things, yet you are still loving and patient with us. Pray that you would help us to remove everything that would stand between us and you and that our affection, our heart's longing, our love, every bit of our strength and energy would be placed on you at the summit to love you more than anything else. We need your help with that. And I pray that you would help us to love those around us as you have loved us. God, this is what we're looking at. This is what's great and most excellent. So open our hearts and our minds to understand your son and his love let us see the gospel, feel the gospel, and be changed by it. One image after another, day by day, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Kids, it is time for you to go. Have fun. Open your hearts and your minds to what God has for you. And everyone else that is here that remains, take your Bible. Open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. First Corinthians chapter 13, that's where we're going to be today. We're in our series, Empowered. And you'll see the three little, the tagline there, Empowered by the Spirit, chapter 12, through love, which is where we are right now in chapter 13. And then we'll eventually get to this, this theme in 14, four others, where the focus is on desiring the gifts that would benefit those around us. Those are what's most important. So let me, let me bring our mind back to the place where we are before we jump into talking about what love is. Paul is writing to the Corinthians, the Corinthians that were a good example of a bad example, and a church that was not spiritual 
He introduces early on in the book, I wanted to come to you as spiritual people, but you're not influenced by the spirit. You're still like a human in the flesh operating in worldliness. And here's how I know. And then he gives all the chapters, all the examples, all the times of how he knew that they were not spiritually led, but they were fleshly led, carnally led because of the division and the fighting, the lack of love, the misuse of their gifts. But they were deceived into thinking that because of what they were experiencing in their body, because they were experiencing like, man, this is great. This is awesome. This feels right. My experience is wonderful. This must be right. This must be of God. And then Paul introduces in chapter 10, you cannot drink of the same cup as the Lord and of demons. I do not want you to be participants with demons. I want you to take the cup of the Lord and drink that. All of us unified together, following the Lord, being led by the Spirit. He talks in chapter 11 about how they were coming together for the Lord's Supper, and it was not for the better, but for the worse. So practically, beneficially, it wasn't benefiting each other. It was actually, they would leave worse because of the experience together. Paul's like, that's how I know. Come to 12, and he says, now concerning the things of the Spirit, concerning spirituals, not necessarily spiritual gifts, but concerning the things that pertain to the Holy Spirit. I don't want you to be uninformed. Then he gives all of chapter 12 an example of how the Holy Spirit means to use the gifts that he determines how to manifest them in you. And these gifts would be used for the common good. That, that we're part of this body and no one is excluded. No one better than the other. No one can say to another, I have no need of you. And no one can look at who they are and say, man, I'm not important because I'm not like this person. But the body would have the same care for one another. And when one suffers, we suffer together. And when one rejoices, we rejoice together. And at the end of 12, he says, man, there's all these gifts. There's these higher gifts that God's given. These gifts that have to do with word ministry that your, your focus and effort and desire to see should be focused on. Not these lower ones that don't really benefit anyone. And we're going to get more to talking about what those are as time progresses. But he says, I'm going to show you, even with all these great gifts, a more excellent way. As the Spirit's working in you, the epitome of God's empowerment in you isn't necessarily when you get the function of the gifts right. Surely that's a sign that the Spirit's at work. But the greatest sign that the Spirit is at work in you is when you have the Spirit-empowered love reverberating through the whole congregation from each and every one, empowered by the Spirit to love like Jesus does. Which is why last week, Paul, uh, Todd talked about what happens when love doesn't lead, when we don't lead with love. And then verses one through three of 13, he gives us three things. He says, man, if I do this and I have not love, I'm a distraction. I'm just a noi- noisy gong or clanging cymbals. I'm using my gift, but if it's lacking love, if it's not through love, I benefit no one. Hey, I got all of these prophetic powers and knowledge and I can understand all mysteries and I have faith that could move mountains, but I have not love. What does he say? I am nothing. Man. And then even if I went to the greatest hyperbole of extreme 
to give my body up to be burned, to lay my body down and to totally be destroyed in some charitable act. He says, I gain nothing if it's not led by love or through love. The point that I want you to see as we're getting into this, I want you to have the context is Paul is trying to work to the center of the heart of the person to know 100% that the Holy Spirit is leading your life and not you. And as we start on the outside and we say, hey, he said, you know that when you were pagans, how you were led, right? You were led by demons, not by the spirit. You know how, how you were led through your passions and your desires and selfishness. But then if you want to get closer to the spirit, well, then everything that you do will be for the common good of those around you. You'll start caring more about others than yourself. Then if we pierce through to the very center at the very uh, uh, main frame of your heart, which is where the spirit's working, what will we see there? We will see agape love. Now, let me remind you, as one of your pastors, we're not going through this series because like, man, we're really struggling and our church is like Corinth. And so now we got to talk about it. It's no, actually, we're very encouraged by the love and the care and the compassion we see in our church right now. We feel very much led to to do what scripture says, which is like, hey, you've been taught by the spirit to love, continue to grow in that. One of the ways we do that is we look at the example of love. We look at the examples in scripture and we learn. We say, you know what? We don't have to get in that situation before we start learning from it. We want to grow and be the type of church that God wants us to be, which is a church where every single member is working properly, laying their life down for one another, using their gifts properly, but of most importance, through love, motivated by love. So we come to today, and I'm going to answer two questions before we get into the passage. So notice, I'm going to see on the screen, notice this verse, Ephesians 4, 4 through 16. Turn there with me. Another passage where Paul is talking to the Ephesians in a similar way as he's talking to the Corinthians about their gift sets. And here's the question I want us to ask and see what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4. The question is this, what builds the church. God told Peter, upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So what is it that builds the church? Ephesians, Ephesians chapter four, just a few. You have first, first, second Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians. Chapter four, drop down verse four. We're just gonna read it. I'm in Galatians, not Ephesians. That's why it doesn't sound right. Okay, here we go. Verse four. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to, that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Sounds like First Corinthians 12. One God and Father of all, who is over all, through all, and in all. But grace was given to me, given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captains and he gave gifts to men. Christ has left the earth, the church with gifts. And he says this, in saying he ascended, what does it mean that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above the heavens. Stay with me, I know it's confusing. That he might fill all things, verse 11. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers. All of the gifts that the body 
uses that helps them grow in the knowledge of God, the word ministry, the gifts that are should be the attention of everyone because that's what you put your attention on is the word of God to grow. So God has given these things to the church to do something to this, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. And here's this word for building up the body of Christ till until what verse 13 until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. The goal of the body is for us all together grow until we reach the fullness of Christ, which means we in our life individually think, act, talk, and live like his son, Jesus. Guess what? We're still all on that journey, aren't we? Anybody here thinks they've arrived? You've just revealed that you haven't. Verse 14, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning and craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in what? Did I just reveal who was following along? So that it builds itself up in love. Our question on the screen, what builds the church? The answer's on the screen as well. Love builds the church So what we've learned and starting to learn is that our gifts, anything that we would do that would be manifested in us are simply and should be expressions of that love, should be the expressions of the love. You cannot bypass love, use your gift and expect to be anything or accomplish anything or gain anything. Love matters most. This is why it is the most excellent Way And Paul has made a pretty good argument to work to the heart to say this should be the primary motivator of your heart. So next question, if love is the more excellent way, how do I know that my love is genuine? Or in other words, how do I know that my love that I'm manifesting is of the Holy Spirit? Which brings us to verses four through seven of 1 Corinthians 13. We're going to go through what love is, what it is not. And this is not an exhaustive list. This is a a very particular list, kind of comprehensive, and it brings together what love is, particularly for the Corinthians. So this has to do with one another in the church, what love looks like. It can apply to every other area of your life with your spouse, with your kids, with your coworkers. It applies everywhere else, but this is first and primarily for in the context of one another, brothers and sisters in the congregation, the church building itself up in love. That's the context we've been in, chapter 12, the body. This is what should be emanating from the inner core of every individual. Now, let me give a disclaimer. We're gonna read through this and we're all gonna be like, Because there's only one person who ever manifested the perfect love we're going to talk about. And it was Jesus Christ, the perfect man. 
And you have been predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. The spirit now at work in you, he's wanting you to look to Jesus as the archetype and you are being transformed for the rest of your life into that image, which means you're going to grow, which means you're not there, which means when, you, when we go through this, myself included, all of us are gonna be convicted about where we're missing this. But what are we getting a picture of with this love? God is showing us what his son Jesus looks like. God is showing us what his love towards us looks like. On the screen, I'm gonna show you another verse, Ephesians 5, 1 and 2. You do not need to turn there. I simply wanna read it for you. So as we go into this, I want you to see this as the type of love that God has for you but also the type of love that we are to be pursuing, chasing after. It says this, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Okay, 1 Corinthians 13, four through seven. Let me read these few verses and then we'll talk about it. Love is patient and kind, Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. So here's what we're gonna do. We're just gonna go through this, walk through this and understand what he's saying about love. Yeah, we can see these words, just read them, but let's dive into them a little bit more. Understand the type of love that God manifests towards us every single moment of every day, but also the type of love he's trying to transform within our hearts so that we can give it to one another. And when you start giving love properly, it'll show up in your gifts and the use of your gifts and the expressions of those gifts. For the first thing is this, love is patient and kind. What does he mean here? Well, first of all, we are talking about agape love. Do you know what that means? It's a Greek word. It's, it's rare among, it's very rare among the, the Greek community, but very prominent in the Bible. Agape love is the type of love that has to do with benevolence for others. It's the type of love that says this, I'm only concerned with benefiting you. It's not the type of love that we get confused today where it's a, it's a sensual feeling. It's, a, it's me loving you because of what you give to me. No, it's, it's I'm loving you regardless of what you give to me or don't give to me. I loving you because I want you to be benefited regardless. This is the type of love that God sheds on us, demonstrates his love and that while we're still sinners, Christ died for us regardless of who we are, of what we've done, still motivated from the inner core that I want to benefit and help and, and love the person here. I want them to benefit of this most selfless type of love. And he starts off by saying this, this agape love will manifest itself amongst one another in a love that is patient and kind. These two words go together. Patience is is this idea of long suffering. It's that there's someone in your life or maybe someone that you meet that does something and offends you in a certain way to where now you are, you are tempted to want to retaliate or you want to become angry. 
but instead you choose to suffer the person long, long, one after another. It's this idea that no matter how many times you could be wronged, you will never retaliate. That you actually become very good at people wronging you and you never giving it back to them. Let's think about Jesus. He, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. How often did Jesus experience offense or things that would warrant him to avenge himself and yet he did not. He was patient. He suffered the wrongdoing all around him. He suffered it all the time. You gotta be patient to love. I mean, think about it. He was a friend of sinners. So think about the the areas of the city he was going into, the people he was hanging out with. He would have to be able to be patient with the wrongdoing all around him, never explode, and to be patient. So so that's more of something that you're, you're not giving to someone. You're you're choosing to not give them your frustration. Instead, you're being patient, patient and kind. Kindness, what is this? It's not just this idea of a a disposition that seems nice. Kindness is the word that means useful. It's a word that means service. It's another word that means you want the person to benefit from you. You're patient and kind. So where's patience is you not giving them maybe what they deserve. Kindness is instead every action towards them, you want it to benefit them. You want, it, you want them to be cared for. Gracious, it's an active goodwill on behalf of this person. These two go together. So when you're loving, you're patient and kind. Enduring all the wrongdoing, but everything that comes out of you is goodwill and welfare for the person before you. Already, I'm with you. Already I'm starting to get convicted, are we not? Lord, we miss this all the time, you know it. Help us. Love is patient and kind. Look at this, love does not envy or boast. The word envy is the same word, jealousy. And this word is used actually in chapter 12. It's the same word when he talks about earnestly desiring the higher gifts. By implication, you are jealous and envious for the type of gifts that were very flashy. And we're gonna find out as he bleeds into the rest of 13 and in chapter 14 that the gift that was primary issue in the church was this gift of tongues. And I know you guys have been itching. Why aren't you explaining any of this? It is coming. We're gonna go through what the scripture tells us to go through and not jump into any of of that until it's time. Next week, we're gonna start explaining what these things were and get more into those details. So bear with us. Tongues was a gift that was flashy and showing that they were fighting over and arguing about and had become kind of the gift that got all of their jealous longing and desire. It's the word we get the word zeal from, burning strong desire and passion for something. Envy says, I want what they have. And even worse, envy would say, I don't want them to have what they have. There is no love inside of any of us when that is inside of us. Jealousy is an extremely impossible thing to live against. Actually, the jealousy of God is the scariest of all types. He can rightfully be jealous because he rightfully deserves our worship. And when we put that worship on something else, he's jealous because he says that worship belongs to me. And he can rightfully 
long for that. The Proverbs talks about how jealousy compared to anger and wrath is no comparison. Anger and wrath can be stifled, but jealousy, there's no voice of reason there if you come up against a jealous person. It is utter selfishness, utter, utter selfishness. I want what they have or I don't want them to have what they have. I want it. Now think about it in the context of the Corinthians, fighting over their gifts. Someone who says, I'm not valuable in the church and they self-deprecate because I don't have this ability or that, or I don't have what they have. The person who's spending all their time ruminating over those types of thought is a person who should not assume or think that they have love inside of them. That is not love. Love does not envy. Flip side, it does not boast. Boasting would say, I want others to know what I have. Boasting is not the person who's envious, but the person who already thinks that everyone should be envious of them. Look who I am and what I have. There's no love there because you denigrate others. You would be prone to look at others and say, you're not like me, then I got no time for you. How can you benefit me? Look, you're not like me. You don't have what I have. If you had what I had, maybe I would listen to you. If you thought like I thought, were able to do what I could do. Maybe we don't express this that overtly on the outside, but these thoughts go through our mind all the time as we fellowship with one another. Love does not envy or boast. What does he say next? Love is not arrogant or rude. Arrogance, this idea, you just think too highly of yourself, right? It's this, I'm in love with myself. I, 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 self-aggrandizing, romanticizing myself and my life and who I am. I am arrogant. I have lifted and exalted myself up in my heart. I am above others. I am arrogant. This is the type of warning scripture gives. Take heed lest you fall. Pride comes before a fall littered with the Corinthians, right? This is what Paul heard of. This is what he knew. So as he's saying, this is what love is, knowing exactly that they would be applying this type of love to their current situation. And like, wow, we are missing it. We are not being led by the spirit. We are not loving. We are still operating in the flesh or more, uh, what's the word? Uh, uh, more severely to explain it accurately, participating with demons, It's the wisdom that does not come from above, James says, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. Where there's selfish ambition and jealousy and rivalries, it is told to be demonic and unspiritual and worldly. There is no spirit of God there. The next word he says is love is not rude. Maybe your scripture says unbecoming or does not act unbecomingly. The word rude has the idea of you are simply just not sensitive to how others think and feel. You could care less. You're gonna do what you wanna do regardless if it's inappropriate or not, regardless if it's not funny to others, regardless if it makes others uncomfortable. And this had to do a lot with uh, sexual types of sins. Manifesting itself and taking advantage of others because you don't care about how you make them feel because it's all about what you want. Rude. Love does not act this way. It's not ill-mannered. It's not inappropriate. It actually cares about the feelings of someone before us. 
Some of us may be really good at truth and saying what's right, but we almost braggadociously lift ourselves up about, look how much I don't care about what others think. Well, when it applies to fearing man, that's right. But when it is applied to the type of love where you actually care about how others feel around you, you will not act rudely to your brothers and sisters. You'll be sensitive to what hurts and doesn't, what's inappropriate. You'll care about what they think and else hold back whatever it is you would do or say. Then he says this, love does not insist on its own way. It's not arrogant, it's not rude, it does not insist on its own way. Self-willed. Think about the Corinthians. From the very beginning of the book, he introduced the fact that they were in cliques. Some were of Paul, some were of Apollos, acting in an arrogant way, some were of Christ. And they all would have been fighting, pointing the finger at each other, saying, you gotta be like me, it's gotta be this way, it's gotta be that. No, 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 it's gotta be this way, it's gotta be from Paul. No, it's gotta be of Apollos. No, it's gotta, well, well, Jesus said this, but uh, an arrogance a, a sense of like what I want is of utmost importance. And so in every situation, in every conversation, I'm always gonna steer it to what I want, what I think it should be. And I'm gonna be thinking it's the right thing because this is the deceitful, cunning ways of the world. We always do what we do because we think it's the right thing. The scripture comes along and it exposes it and says, no, recheck it. If it's not according to how Christ lived and it's not self-denial and others focused then it's not of Christ just because you believe it's right or feel really strongly it's right and it must be this way. If you are insisting on your own way, unconcerned about what others may think or want or need, regardless of how righteously, convictingly passionate you think it is, you're operating not in love. Insisting on your own way. Love does not insist on its own way, selfish, self-willed. And then it says this, it's not irritable. So he hits two sides of the spectrum because maybe some of us would say, hey, you know what? I'm a very patient person. But he says, no, love is patient and kind. Kindness would then become active in its goodwill. So maybe I'm patient, but I don't ever actively do anything to care for someone. Well, someone said, well, I'm not, I'm not, I, don't, I don't struggle with envy. Well, then you're probably prone to struggle with boasting. Well, I don't struggle with boasting. Well, then you're probably prone to struggle with envy. You come here now to, it does not insist on its own way. I, I don't struggle with insisting that everything be my way. Well, then maybe you struggle then with what he says next. Irritable, resentful. Well, I'm not an irritable. Well, let's, let's talk about it. Irritable, provoked. You can be, the bear can be poked and then explosion, right? Irritable, what's happening around. Anger's there and you want it to come out. You want to you explode irritably. Everything around you, regardless of who it is, whatever's happening, it's, it's, it's welling up with you, the sense of anger when you want to let it out. Oh, anger problem people. Well, I'm not one of those anger problem people. Well, maybe you're the next person. Love is not irritable or resentful. Resentful is the idea of taking account. It's, it's literally the word for the accountant where you have the ledger and you're keeping track of everything. Yeah, you don't explode. Yeah, you don't get mad. You always on the surface respond seemingly patiently, but inside you remember every single offense. 
you hold it, the bitterness is growing and inside you is a, a cancerous hatred and resentment and bitterness that's growing towards someone. But you're deceived because you never are irritable. You never explode with the anger. So you never think anything's wrong. So the scripture comes along, the Holy Spirit says here, but here's what love is. It's not irritable, yeah, it doesn't explode, but it's also not resentful. I think about Jesus. He had plenty of times where he could have been irritable and plenty of things where he would have the right to harbor and hold and be resentful to us, not counting our sins against us. Instead, choosing to, while we were sinners with a long track track record of sins and things worthy of death and hell still in those moments while we hated him the most when we were running from him as hard as we could when we were doing whatever we wanted to do living in rebellion doing whatever it is and thinking however it was and saying whatever it is insisting on our ways living in such an offense to the holy god who created morality itself who made the law constantly living in a way that is an offense to him and then every single person on the planet throughout time bringing their offenses to him. Yet this holy God is not irritable or resentful and still at the proper time brings his son into the world, has him live a perfect life and become the perfect sacrifice for the very people who are undeserving of that type of grace. And then he showers us. Scripture says he lavishes upon us the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon you in Christ Jesus. You wake up every morning, the mercies of the Lord are brand new. Our God does not act this way towards you. What are the situations in your life where irritability is showing up and the outbursts are coming? Or who is it in your life that you, man, you keep that ledger. You're like, but you don't understand what they did here. And I'm just getting to the point where I can't take it anymore. And I, I gotta have this legal record in, th- in case things go down. Okay, you, you may by human standards be doing something that sounds very legally practical. But according to God's standards, it's not love. And God doesn't do that to you. It's not resentful doesn't seethe inside. Look what he says next. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing. This sounds obvious, doesn't it? It's like, where in my life would I do that? Like when I see something that's wrong, I get mad at it. When I see something that's wrong, I'm angry. Well, I want you to think about this. If we're not loving and say something like envy is inside of us, jealousy. In chapter 12, we were told that the body, when working properly, cares for one another in such a way that when one suffers, everyone suffers. And when one rejoices, everyone rejoices. But if love is not in us and instead are these things, these selfish things, you will find that when someone is suffering, you don't tend to suffer with them. You actually tend to inside are kind of happy that happened to them because you're filled with envy and you're glad a plight befell them. Or when someone's rejoicing, something good happened in their life or they got something or some type of debt was canceled or some great gift was given to them or they were healed in some miraculous way, something inside of you can't rejoice with them because you're so concerned that you don't have that 
So now you're going to be frustrated and mad that they're rejoicing and you're not. That's a sign that love does not exist. Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing. Is there joy in your life where there should be blushing? Is there rejoicing where there should be confrontation? So now think about this. What about the areas of life where we're in a group setting with people and something happens either in the conversation or even in the actions that is wrong? And in that moment, you know what the truth is. What are you ashamed of? Are you ashamed of what you're hearing and experiencing? Are you ashamed of what you know you should say? But in our culture, hey, you do you, boo. Hey, you do you. Right? Because we're more concerned that people feel a fake love and support from us. Love will not rejoice and support wrongdoing. It will care more about the truth, which is why he adversely says, instead, it rejoices with the truth. Not simply with what's true, but with the truth. This is this idea of God's word and truth. You, you love God's word. It rejoices with the truth. God's people love what God has made, what he says is good, what he says is great, what he says is honorable. God's people love that. And God's people disdain accurately and appropriately like he disdains it, the things that are evil and wicked and does not rejoice with it. And we live in a culture now where the fake love is taking over and pressing against us. Hey, you want to love us? You want to, you want to prove to me you love me? Then you'll agree with me. You want to prove to me that you love, then you'll say what we say. You'll get on the same bandwagon we're on and you'll not only say that it's okay, but you'll rejoice and celebrate the pride month with us. Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing and there's much darkness in the world. We must shine light into it and it requires rejoicing in the truth. But in all these things, speaking the truth and love, and there are no shortages of opportunities for now as a Christian to be on the platform and the hot seat where people have the microphone in your face saying, well, what do you believe about this? What do you say is good? Man, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Male and female, he created them. And when he looked at it, he said, it was good. God's way is best. And, and there was an a, a angel that is filled with envy and boasting and arrogance and pride and jealousy that hates God and what he has created. And we see here, even thousands of years later after this was written, the same evil manifestations are propping up trying to attack the very thing that God created in the beginning. How God created you is beautiful and good, but you need to know there is a spirit and a participation with demons in the world today that wants to attack the very things that God has made because it hates him and it hates you and he comes to kill, steal, and destroy. Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing but rejoices with the truth. And now he's gonna culminate it. He's gonna say four things that are of extreme hyperbole that are gonna, that are gonna nail the coffin of who Jesus is and what his love looks like for us. He says this. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Let's talk about that. Love bears all things. What does that mean? Word bear. Support. It's the idea of protecting. It's the idea of caring for. Bears all things. In the context of the church, one another ministry, think about the Corinthians. 
anything that you would experience that would seem like wrongdoing, that would seem very hard to be, get along with people, you are bearing this. You are bearing whatever it is this person's making you feel. And to bear with them in all things means that you care more about protecting them and caring for them than giving up on them or to fighting against them. That even when maybe there's a wrongdoing and you must confront them, you still care about protecting them in that confrontation. You are supporting and protecting one another in all things, all scenarios of life. You know, the Corinthians had it backwards. You go to chapter uh, chapter five, you see a person who was sexually immoral in such a way they were not repentant and in such a way it would have made even the Gentiles blush. And Paul says this, your boasting is not good. Okay, you are bearing with them, but in the wrong way. You're bearing the sin and not the person. Your boasting is not good. This is egregious. This must be judged amongst one of you. Do the loving thing. Tell him to repent. If he does not, he must be kicked out and removed from among you so he can experience the destruction of the flesh by Satan himself in hopes that if he will not listen to the cries of the brothers and sisters, he'll come back after experiencing that his way is not good and only leads to destruction and he'll repent and come back for the unrepentant person. To bear with them means to deal with them in that way, but in dealing with someone in such a hard way, you still care about not harming them and protecting them and doing as much as you can to help them succeed. Love bears all things. Then he says this, love believes all things. Love is not cynical or suspicious all the time, right? A cynical, suspicious attitude is not something that you get an award for or should and should not be confused with discernment. No matter what happens, no matter what someone says, it's hard for you to take people at their word face to face. Maybe wounds you've experienced in your life bring you to a place where it's hard for you to believe to trust, to have an innocence about you that does not apply intentions of wrong, but takes things at face value. And you believe that what you're hearing, you're believing the best. You're believing the most positive outcome. You're believing that what was said to you and that what was said is true and good. But if it's a lie filled with nothing I hear can be trusted regardless if there's pragmatism and logic behind why you can't trust, but you and your heart constantly living in a suspicious, cynical, you will live a very isolated, lonely life. You'll push everyone away and it won't be love. Well, so you're saying I gotta be gullible? Take it into context of what we just said. Does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with truth. The whole harmony of this allows and helps us know how to love properly in all these contexts. Believes all things. It says this, hopes all things. In other words, never gives up. No matter how many times you experience the failure and the offenses of someone in your life, you never come to a point where you say, God's done with you, I'm done with you. We cannot get there. Jesus is the God of the 11th hour. And people will still be coming to the faith and being saved on their deathbed. I remember going very on in my pastoral ministry to meet a woman 
who was dying in the hospital. I didn't know her. Someone else knew her. I was with my mentor and pastor and we went in there and she literally was hours away from dying, still cognitive, could barely make any noise other than breathe and shake her head, leaning down, whispering in her ear, learning that she had never given her life to Jesus. Hey, have you heard the gospel that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins? And that if you call upon his name, you, have you heard that before? Do you know that? And shake your head. Has God saved you? Has, you been forg- has he forgiven you of your sins? No. Do you know right now that it's not too late? That, that even if you have this little time left on earth, you can be saved. And the Bible says, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord to be saved, do you believe he died on the cross for you? Do you believe he rose from the dead? Do you believe he's Lord and Savior? Do you want to be saved? You don't have to say the words. In your mind, God can hear it. You just pray and ask him to forgive you, ask him to save you, and he will share it about the thief on the cross and tears rolling down her eyes as she got saved right there on her deathbed and before the night was over, was gone. Love hopes all things. Some of us, all of us have people in our life, maybe right there on the precipice, tempted to give up on. They'll never be saved. Given up on them. Like you, you can feel it welling up in your heart. You're just done. God will never be done with you. Never. He doesn't want you to be done with others. You keep trusting. You hope, real genuine hope, where I know that as long as I'm alive, they're alive, there is a living hope for them. And then finally this, love endures all things. This is the military position. It's a word for the military. It's like you're gonna hold this position no matter the costs. You are going to plant your feet here and no matter what comes against you, you're not going to be moved. Love endures all things. Church, what could we experience from one another that would be worth saying, I'm done. Not putting up with you anymore. Done with you, not love. He will never leave you or forsake you. He goes with you wherever you go. Yes, there are consequences and there's discipline, but not him giving up on you, him trying to constantly revert you back to the right path. And in the same way, we come together, Jesus saves us, we begin to transform into Jesus and we start to do that for each other. And one of the ways this love is expressed, one of the main ways is through our gifts for one another. When the body is working properly, it builds itself up in love. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. So now let me remind you of what I said at the very beginning. This is the type of love that God has for you in Jesus Christ. And what did it say in Ephesians chapter five? Let me read it one more time. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. I'm with you on this. Every single one of us should be hearing this perfection of love and this example and description of Jesus and be convicted of where we're missing it. That's expected. But we should be moving towards the image of Christ 
in this. And one of the ways he does that is he brings us these words to hit our ears at the right time so we can revert and repent and get back on the path of love for what? The circumstances in our life? For the people in our life? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. It convicts, it rebukes. You know my heart of many times not wanting to stand up here and even preach this, feeling so unqualified and unworthy because of where perfect love is still missing in my life. All of us as your children here feel that and say that. We need you by your spirit to empower us. We don't want to follow cleverly devised myths and cunnings and schemes of demons and the devil to live our life in such a way where we'll think that we're doing the right thing all the time, loving the right way, but all the still while it's still motivated about serving ourselves. Jesus, you taught us what self-denial looks like, what willingly laying our life down looks like. Would you, would you manifest that in us? and that we would be the vessels of light for the world and for one another for our time here on earth, that our life would not be wasted, where we gain nothing, we profit nothing, and we benefit no one else around us. But God, we would be you on earth. Do this in our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen.